HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. It's Tuesday, November 30th, 2021. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. And uh, often we, we go slightly off topic. We're not talking about beer today, but we are talking about regulatory issues and licensing. And I know, I know uh, many of our listeners uh, have an alcohol license or a beer license or something in a pub or a brewery. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, cannabis licenses in Massachusetts and uh, the soon-to-be-issued marijuana licenses in New York State. Um, so let's have our guests introduce ourselves. First, Andrew. Hi, my name is Andrew Muddy. I run an advocacy group called Beantown Greentown, uh, based here in Massachusetts. And I also uh, run Grow Well Conference with my partner, Jimmy. And um, that's it. All right, and Max? Hey, Jimmy. Max Bookman, Pazetsky and Bookman. I'm an attorney and partner at the law firm here in New York that specializes in alcoholic beverage law and uh, since uh, April of this year, uh, cannabis law. And it's great to be back on the show. All right. So, Max, uh, on your website, I'm just learning this today from you guys. (laughs) Adult use marijuana is now legal in New York State. So what, what's the overview of it and where are we at and how soon can I get a, a retail license and what kind will they be? Yeah. So look, I mean, depending on who you ask, uh, you know, adult use marijuana has been legal for many for, for, for a long time, at least in effect. Um, but now the law has caught up and so that it's legal for everybody. Um, but uh, if you live in New York and you um, haven't seen any retail dispensaries pop up in your neighborhood, it's not it's not you. It's not your neighborhood. It's because even though uh, we have a law that's been passed since April, which legalizes adult use marijuana, puts a, a licensing and regulatory regime into place, there's been a, a, a real series of delays that have um, really hampered the rollout of that program. And so we're doing a lot of catch up. 
Um, I know your listeners, uh, many of them know a little bit to a great deal about New York state politics. And so what happened in, in, in April was um, even though the law was passed, um, the first thing that that law does is that it creates a brand new state agency called the, the Cannabis Control Board and the Office of Cannabis Management. And that state agency needed to be built. Uh, people needed to be appointed to the board. Um, staff needed to be hired. Um, uh, office space needed to be rented. Uh, application forms needed to be put together. Regulations needed to be promulgated. That all was not in the law. That all had to happen. And uh, then Governor Cuomo was responsible for starting that process by making appointments and in a very uh, very on-brand Cuomo-esque sort of maneuver, um, he decided that he was going to hold hostage um, appointments uh, of the Cannabis Control Board unless the state legislature agreed to uh, settling some other scores with him on completely unrelated political topics. And so there was sort of a stalemate that was in place from about April until the governor resigned in, in, in August, where nothing happened. And it's a real shame. Um, then when our new governor, Kathy Hochul, uh, came in, um, she identified cannabis and the stalled process as a, a real area where she can uh, make an impact. And so she got right to work and within a matter of weeks, appointed everybody who she needed to appoint on the Cannabis Control Board. That board has now uh, started the process of meeting and promulgating rules, but uh, we're behind. And, um, and so it's still going to be several months until, at best, until um, you could start applying for um, retail licenses. And I'm, we can talk lo lots about that. Um, but, uh, we, de we definitely will. Yeah. And I was going to Andrew. So Andrew, um, I spent some time in Massachusetts and I got to know you. Um, what, what struck me the most was that I, you know, I always, I always think of things in New York, whether it's food and beverage and hospitality is, uh, you know, the greatest in the world, but in Massachusetts, uh, the cannabis industry is, is, is really seems to be one of the leaders in the country. Will you tell us a little bit about, um, the, the change that happened when Massachusetts, you know, legalized cannabis and just a little bit of overview, because I feel that New York State can really learn a lot from Massachusetts on this. Yeah, Jimmy, thank you for um, for noting that. And the funny thing is, is as I listen to some of the issues that are happening in New York, it's very much uh, parallel to what happened here in Massachusetts. It we uh, we passed uh, recreational cannabis use here in Massachusetts and. Uh, November of 2016. It wasn't until early 2018 that the full cannabis control board came up with all of the regulations. So we have, and every state has their own quote unquote board, much like what New York is doing, but we stumbled over our own feet. You know, it took them, it took them six to eight months just to form the board. Um, the, sorry, the cannabis control commission. Uh, there was there was a bunch of hoopla about who was on it. It's all political, right? And once it was formed, then they had to go into diving into writing the regulations. So if New York can learn anything from Massachusetts, just take a look at how long since the commission was formed until they actually had their first draft of regulations. Not to mention your first draft of regulations go in and then you have to go into state legislation. So everything happens on 
what I consider a snail's pace, just because it's legal doesn't necessarily quote unquote mean it's legal. And everything has to be set up with rules and guidelines. The biggest downfall in the, the whole hypocrisy to the whole thing here in Massachusetts is though, even though we legalize it with all the regulations in place, it's more in what most people see now is more illegal now than it was before it was even legal. <laughs> um, and it's, it's just mind boggling. You know, you get a bunch of people in a room with the badge on that says I'm part of the cannabis control commission. And it seems like a battle to outdo each other, to literally put in place regulations that pigeonhole this whole industry into a place that is, is almost unmovable. Uh, what, what's a good to- example, Andrew? Of, of something that really stands out. All right. Well, the, the the first and the foremost is is the is the actual overlays. Like if New York is going to do this anyway, that Massachusetts did it, um, which a lot of states have, it, it's called an overlay. And basically, you take a town that says, "Oh yes, we'll be a uh, we we allow cannabis in our town." They take an overlay and they say, "You can only do this within these specific areas of our town." So it's called the overlay. You take your map. You overlay it with where you can do cannabis. Uh, those are all regulated places where you can go. That's an example of what made it so difficult. So you go to some of these towns and you look at the overlay and you say, well, I can't do business in that overlay. There's already X amount of businesses. There's all this property sold. I can't do it because of X, Y, and Z. The regulatory pieces they put into place might have been um, you know, 600 feet from a school. Um, and then every place in that zone is debunked because you can't do it there. Uh, Buffers they put into place uh, one mile from the next establishment to the next. Well, that puts you outside of the buffer. That might put the whole zone in light industrial outside of, you know, having any other than one person or one business in that zone. So all the regulatory stuff that goes into this, that's put into this, in my opinion, was way overthought, way overregulated. And that's the way the whole system's going. And if we're not careful, when federal legalization comes out, we're all in for it and get ready to really see what happens with big corporations and um, the ability to be able to maneuver in this industry. Wow. So um, back to Max, at, at the stage you're at now, you know, I'm sure you're, you, I know it's on your, featured on your website. Um, what questions are you getting uh, from potential clients? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, a few things that Andrew said are are really important and really telling. I mean, I think, you know, no New Yorker, I think, would ever admit to wanting to learn something from, from Massachusetts. But uh, we have a lot to learn from Massachusetts and all the other states um, that have more developed and mature cannabis regulatory uh, regimes than New York does, which is still in its infancy. I mean, everybody, to Andrew's point, you know, an observation, everybody... Um, wants to know everything there possibly is to know about how they can open uh, either a dispensary or a cultivation or processing uh, operation today, yesterday. They, they want to know all of the regulations right away. And what's, you know, I think what's been lost in the messaging when we passed adult use cannabis in New York is that the law that was passed just provides an overarching structure. It doesn't provide 
all of the minute details, which has to come in the form of regulations. And those regulations still need to be promulgated by the Cannabis Control Board. So some of the big questions people ask me, and you know, some of the some of these some of these questions there are answers. Some of these questions there's there's not answers yet. We still have to wait. Um, but the biggest ones focus on um, you know what steps can I take now to better position myself to be able to get a license. And the answer to that question is read up on what the law is, um, stay in tune and in touch with the Cannabis Control Board about what their regulations are, but it's still too early to do things like, you know, lease space or, um, you know, file an application because there is no application uh, to be filed. And so we're still in an information gathering stage where the Cannabis Control Board is considering regulations. I mean, one thing I'll tell you, Jimmy, is you know, I told you that there was this delay with the, the board being formed. Now that the board has been formed, they've had a few meetings, but and in those meetings, they pr proposed some regulations, but none of those regulations actually focus on the core yet of adult use licensing. They, they've nibbled around the edges at some, at some low-hanging fruit, things like home cultivation, They've done some regulations on to make it easier for people to cultivate at home. They've loosened some of the restrictions on medicinal marijuana, which is, you know, an interesting issue. But I think, you know, what we're all waiting for, and we're sort of still in the honeymoon phase with our cannabis control board, they haven't done anything yet to, to upset anybody. But, you know, what we're still waiting on on our end is for them to propose regulations on things like, um, uh, like adult use licenses, um, retail licenses, how, you know, what the processing time is going to be. What is the specific process? When, you know, when can we start applying? Um, uh, Andrew mentioned overlay zones. I mean, so we don't have that in New York's law, but New, in New York's law, what they, what they endeavored to do was create a statewide regulatory framework, just like alcohol, where almost all of the rules come from the state, very little local participation. The only local participation there is, is uh, municipalities have until the end of this year to opt out of retail sales, which most have not done. Um, and if they don't opt out by the end of the year, then there is no opt out for them ever. Um, and they are allowed to put in some reasonable time, place and manner restrictions. But, you know, to Andrew's point, what, what those restrictions actually look like um, and what the board is going to tolerate in terms of legitimate local restrictions is completely yet to be seen. So there's a lot still ahead of us in New York. Yeah. So Andrew, what are some of the, the things that, that are unique about Massachusetts? I mean, like how many retail licenses are there, you know, and, and what are, what are the other licenses available and just give us the lay of the land. Yeah, sure. I, I, I honestly can't give you like a number stat. Um, without looking at the most recent data from the CCC, but um, just just overall kind of big picture. And, and I think this is a, a learning lesson and a tell for a lot of new states that are coming on board. But uh, one thing that the CCC did here in Mass um, is they implemented a ton of uh, preferential treatment, we'll call it, for the big players that existed prior to Recreational. So we had a strong, healthy medical program here in Massachusetts. All of those groups got together and the, the regulatory board allowed them 
to process applications ahead of any other application in the recreational field. And that, that literally put a handicap on any adult use license that wanted to come out. So for example, if you had 32 medical groups in a state, they have the power, the money, the know-how to apply for an adult use, they can put an application in tomorrow. They can put five in tomorrow. Times that by 32, you're looking at 150 applications. Now the state and the way they regula regulated it, they said that they had to review every single one of those before they could even touch a, a recreational app. Now imagine what it's like being a mom and pop business like myself, for example, and if I submitted an application, which I did, by the way, um, it took us 18 months to have our application even looked at wow. after being submitted. So that's a little bit of lay of the land. If you want to look at numbers, the majority of the licenses that they processed, that people went after, that were, were easily obtainable, and the most sought after were retail licenses. We have a majority of retail licenses issued here in Massachusetts that is compounded way above any processor or any cultivator. So now you're in a supply and demand issue where you have all these retail licenses that have come out and everybody has their doors open, but now you have very few suppliers. Now the original medical people have a strong a stronghold on that. Like take for example, you know, if you're a vertically integrated medical operation, you have processing, you have cultivation, and you could expand with those restrictions they put in place. So now you're expanding, you have more cultivation, you have more processing, and all these new retails, uh, retail licenses for REC are coming on board. Who do you go to? The only people available to buy the stuff from are the med people. So they put in rules and regulations to say, now all the med people have the ability to sell to these REC people. But they didn't allow any rec people to sell to any medical people. So when you talk about regulation and restrictions and laws and rules and making it legal, you're just creating this whole cluster of, of, of rules and issues and laws and, and everything that just gets in the way. If we were to legalize cannabis, we should get rid of cannabis control commissions. We should get rid of cannabis control boards. We should let people open doors like they open <laughs> clothing shops and restaurants. It, it's, it's absurd and it's crazy. So that's a little bit of the lay of the land from, from where we stand. <laughs> and uh, now Max, uh, keep going with this one. This is fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, uh, for better or for worse, New York, and it seems other States have as well, um, have taken the sort of the alcohol model when it comes to, uh, regulating cannabis and, you know, Jimmy, that goes to the last time I was on your program and we talked about um, the similarities between alcohol regulation and, and cannabis regulation in New York. Um, so we, you know, these boards exist and, you know, they will exist for the foreseeable future. And, you know, and, but, but, you know, they, there's ways to get it right and there's ways to get it wrong. And, you know, I think one of the challenges when you're bringing this industry, which is an underground industry, sort of into the light of, of, of legalization, is um, it's hard to create that economy um, when you're sort of operating in the blind. And so, to the point that Andrew made, and you know, I speak with growers in New York who are already able to, you know, grow um, for CBD. 
um, and are interested in also being able to grow for THC once that's legal. You know, what, 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 what they tell me is a version of what, what Andrew has said, which is that there's, there's, if you get this wrong, there could be some serious supply and demand problems. So, you know, we're based in New York City. Um, there are understandably going to be far, far, far more uh, retail dispensary licenses issued in, in New York City than any other type of license. There's not going to be that many cultivation or processing operations in New York City, although there'll be some. Um, there's going to be a huge demand amongst those retailers for product to sell to consumers who are definitely going to have demand. But where do you source that product from? Because vertical integration, um, which I'm sure most of your listeners understand, but for those who don't, vertical integration just being a fancy word for saying um, you cannot participate in multiple levels of the supply chain. You can't manufacture and produce cannabis and also sell it at retail unless you're one of these medical companies, which is also what we have in New York, as well as seems Massachusetts. But if, if you're not allowed to be vertically integrated and you're a retailer, you need to buy product from somebody. And if there's not enough um, growers you know, in upstate New York to, and, and, and cultivators to supply and, and service that demand, you're going to have a severe imbalance. And that's where the underground market might come in. And that you know, is a problem that other states have experienced where you've had uh, either um, uh, you've had either retailers resorting to the underground market or the opposite problem of sometimes suppliers resorting to the underground market. And um, the whole thing can sort of go off the rails. And so it's, it's, a delic it's a delicate balance. And I, you know, you know New York's law has gotten a lot of praise um, in, within New York for, um, for some of its progressive nature. Um, there's, some, you know, there's some real progressive elements to the law that favor um, black and brown businesses, businesses that are owned by women. Um, uh, but uh, how this actually plays out in reality um, is still yet to be seen. And, uh, and you know, we could look at more mature markets um, as an example of how it may play out. Yeah. Andrew, th that's an issue you've mentioned before, social equity. What, what is social equity and, you know, how, how is it in Massachusetts? Uh, it's, an, it's an interesting conversation. Um, and, and to Max's point, like if you were to look at more mature markets, you, you have very few to look at that are actually mature. Like California has been doing this a long time, but I was there in, what was it? 2018 when they switched from, um, a medical market to a recreational market. Um, and just, just understanding the complexities that go into the change is, is unbelievable. Um, but when new markets come on board, like Illinois, for example, and, and I'm sorry, I'm going to get to the social equity part. They established what a lot call is a, a, a really good look at social equity and how to implement it. Um, and and I, I think if you're going to look at social equity, you have to look at injustice as a whole, right? Like there's people sitting in jail right now for a gram of weed in some states and then there's people that are riding the high horse and the million and billion dollar profits off of the same product. And to me, that's just just like a, a huge way of looking at, at, at this world as, 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 as hypocrisy. Like we, are, we still have people in jail for something that somebody's you know, profiting off of. And, and, and social equity comes into the play where how do you take people that have 
have been wronged by the injustices and, and make it right. And, and that's like a huge question. Um, and decriminalizing it is, is the first start. Like you, you want to make it so that, you know, your average Joe walking down the street with a gram doesn't get thrown into jail. And, and, and ultimately, when you look at crimes on an overall basis, uh, marijuana crime is, is a waste of ta- uh, taxpayers' dollars. Like, why are we even doing it? It, and these are the questions we need to think of before we even think about, you know, what social equity means as a law or as uh, as an initiative to get more people involved. These people that have been affected by the war on drugs are the champions. These are the people that have been doing it for years and years, creating products, uh, keeping people healthy and paving the way for what Many of these MSOs, which are multi-state operators, and people are doing um, and, and just reaping, reaping products from them. And, and unfortunately, when you look at the landscape, it's predominantly white males. Um, and, the, and the injustice lies in how we get you know, the heritage and legacy group involved. Um, growers that have been doing this on the illicit market no more than any white dude in a suit that just chucked a bunch of money at it will ever know. And I'm sorry, but it's, it's the reality of the situation. And in order to make it equitable for anybody and every, everybody, we need to reexamine how we even structure these regulations and these laws. So, um, and what's an example of uh, someone's applying for a license? It, it's, is it pre- what's preferential for social equity? How does that work? Yeah, does that person well, just have to be part of the business? Nope. Is it a figurehead? Yep. No, it's it's it, it's it's complex. So in Massachusetts, they've established what they call economic empowerment, um, and honestly, it's a joke. What they put in place was a system to allow black and brown people to to apply for a status that essentially does nothing. They, they've they've claimed that. If you're economic empowerment in your Massachusetts, you get preferential treatment. You get, you know, your application passed through faster than anybody. Um, and I think there's one or two businesses in the economic empowerment structure that exist in Massachusetts today. Wow. That then years through the process, they implemented social equity, right? Uh, so this is so more people could apply, but you needed to meet criteria to, in order to be there. So you needed to live in a town that was economically affected by the war on drugs. You yourself needed to be incarcerated or have a conviction of, 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 uh, of some stature in order to apply. But they put a limit on that stature. So if you were trafficking across state lines, you couldn't apply, which is bullshit, in my opinion. And they've done a lot of things in, in, in that realm in creating this quote unquote social equity that they think provides this pathway for opportunity, but it really doesn't, you know, the the real pathway for opportunity is, is to release the regulations, to release the quote unquote past criminals from jail. Like this is a system that's broken. Like you can't move forward positively with a broken system until you understand where the broken pieces are and fix it. Um, And Max, I hear on the radio sometimes that there's some group in New Jersey that says Governor Phil Murphy is asking you to you can come forward and get your record clean if you had a, a marijuana conviction. Um, 
is this a big part of the conversation going on in New York right now? Well, New York, the way they try to tackle this, the social and economic equity component is in a few different ways. One is, uh, and it seems like from what I'm hearing from Andrew, it's similar to Massachusetts, where you are given um, preferential status if you had a previous uh, conviction for marijuana trafficking. And so it's not that uh, you know it gets expunged, although there's previous legislation in New York City um, and I think New York State too, but definitely New York City, um, which actually does uh, you know seal low-level marijuana offense records so that it's not really part of your your record moving forward. But the other, and I think more much more sort of publicized and talked about way that New York has tried to address social and economic equity is through a commitment in the statute. This is not up to regulation; it's in the law to issue uh, a, a tar- at least a target. 50% of all uh, licenses that are issued to be issued to, quote, social and economic equity applicants. And it's not a status that you apply for. It's just part of the application process and in, in, in disclosing essentially the, the, the gender and, and racial breakdown of your company that's applying for a cannabis license. And what the law is, is that if, you, if your company is a majority either um, essentially black or brown people. I mean, it's a whole list, but it's basically if you're not white um, or, uh, and or um, female, so you can make a combination of that. Um, if it's over fi- uh, 50%, if it's a majority, um, then you qualify as a social and economic equity applicant and you get put into this bucket of, 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 of preferential treatment where you are going to be part of the 50% of licenses that are, that are issued. Um, how that plays out in practice is, is yet to be seen, but um, it was a really center, central part of ensuring this law's passage. I mean, in New York, there were many attempts to pass uh, adult use cannabis legalization. It failed in 2019. Um, it did not have this equity component to it. In 2020, there was the pandemic, so there wasn't any attempt. But in 2021, the inclusion of this social and economic equity component really is what got a lot of progressive votes to support it. So there's a lot of people in the state legislature who have their eyes on the Cannabis Control Board um, and with great interest in seeing how the licensing of social and economic equity applicants play out. Because what they don't want to see is exactly what Andrew said. Um is the you know is the problem of the white dudes in suits uh, you know swooping in and and getting all the capital uh, and all the profits from uh, adult use? But I you, think, you, you know, could have a front person too. You, you you could get a person of color. Well, no, put I mean, them the in the they, organization and well, no, because the way they try to tackle that is that there needs to be a majority of of people who are again essentially not white males, so people who are black, brown, or female. And there's an additional provision that says that you have to demonstrate to the board that those individuals have legitimate and meaningful day-to-day control over the operation of the business. So, you know, those two requirements together are designed to uh, to prohibit a scenario where you have the, you know, the white male who just gets um, some people as fronts, um, but but you know, but but he really you know controls the business um, unless you put in a fraudulent ap- application. Um, uh, you know, if you're being truthful, then you know that w- you know that that scenario would not qualify you for social and economic equity. You'd have to demonstrate that the individuals who are um, black, brown, and female are actually the ones who are running the business. How the Cannabis Control Board actually 
you know, implements and enforces that law goes into the category of to be determined. We are waiting to see their regulations. We're waiting to see how this plays out um, in reality. But it's gotten a lot of uh, publicity, and it's been an important you know, part of uh, getting our law passed in New York. Well, hey, guys, we're off to a great start here. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. We're recording on Giving Tuesday, but it'll be airing later this week. But anyways, you should check us out, Heritage Radio Network org slash donate and support us on Giving Tuesday. I recommend becoming a, a monthly member. You can contribute one, five, or ten dollars a month, and um, you can become a, a year-round member at Heritage Radio Network. org slash donate. So we're talking about cannabis regu- regulatory and licensing in uh, New York State and Massachusetts. Um, Max Bookman, attorney. We've we, we've been on a couple of fun shows. We've talked about regulatory and New York State SLA before. Um, on a side note, as, as we're talking about all these like, you know, bureaucratic uh, statutes and regulations and what can happen, I'm still quite amazed. And I think the last time you were on, we were talking about a lot of the emergency measures that the state made to respond to COVID, like allowing the cocktails to go. And um, also very quickly, the city set up the outdoor dining I know these were very popular with our listeners and people in the industry. Um, you want to just give us a recap of how was that able to happen and why can't uh, other regulations move as quickly? Oh, man. Well, look, yes. I mean, last time I was on the show, was, yeah, I, think, I think it was over a year ago and we were in the midst of these, uh, you know, these pandemic restrictions. I mean, the quick answer is cocktails to go and the outdoor dining were emergency executive orders that were done uh, because there was a state of emergency in place. In August of 2021, then Governor Cuomo, or maybe it was even June, I've, you know, in basically this summer, Governor Cuomo ended the state of emergency, declared that the COVID emergency was over. And with that, all of his legal authority to put in um, cocktails to go, um, you know, uh, executive orders and allow the state liquor authority to have that all dissipated. So we tried, you know, I, I, our firm represents the New York City Hospitality Alliance. We tried to push for legislation, an actual law that would allow for the cocktails to go program to continue. But unfortunately, it was met with some stiff opposition from your local liquor store associations who felt that uh, it was, cocktails to go was cutting into their business. A group that represents a lot of small businesses too. It's, I know how complicated it is and we, we've done yeah. a lot of these shows, but let, let's, let's look at um, some operations in Massachusetts. So, Andrew, um, I, I recently toured with you. We're, we're, we are full disclosure. We're both co-hosting a cannabis industry conference north of Boston, uh, December eighth, uh, 
growwellconference.com. And it's been great December working 9th. with you. Summer 9th. Thank you. <laughs> Summer 9th, growwellconference.com. Thank you for working with me. Um, when we toured some of the dispensaries in Haverhill, Massachusetts, can you just tell me like the way they operate? What can you buy there? The security measures to get in. I mean, this is not like walking into a bar. No. Uh, the funny thing is, and and I and I love this like comparison because you can walk into a bar. There's no lock on the door. They don't check your ID until you actually order it. If they check your ID at all, you can drink as much as you can possibly drink. You can stumble out the bar and nobody really cares. There's no security. There's nothing going on, right? So let's look at a marijuana establishment. You have to walk in to a vestibule, which is locked off from the actual dispensary where you get your weed, right? They check your ID once. Uh, you sit in the vestibule until there's enough space in the store because, you know, unlike a bar, you can't load it full of tons of people and they, they limit how many people can go in. Once you get escorted through the security door into the actual dispensary, you get assigned a bud tender. That bud tender then tells you what weed is on the menu and what you're allowed to buy. By state law, you're only allowed to hold an ounce of marijuana. Uh, they have restrictions on how many edibles and how much edibles you can buy. Likewise with tinctures and all the other manufactured products. They then check your ID again before you purchase. So you show your ID twice. You purchase your cannabis. Uh, and then you're escorted out a third security door where you're now free to go. Um, and it's just an, it's an interesting uh, way of uh, hosting retail. Uh, you constantly feel like you're doing something illegal. Um, you, you, there's about a hundred cameras in these um, dispensaries that are recording your every move, not to mention every employee's move. Um, there's strict protocol based upon where and how they move product within the store, how it's labeled. You, it, everybody thinks this idea of like, Cannabis everywhere when you walk into a store. You can barely smell it, to be honest with you. I, I have to say that I, I that was my first reaction. I It's more like a high security pharmacy. I Correct. thought it would be, I think most people think that people will be in there getting high and you'll think Correct. you'll have a problem. People associate it with what you, the worst sides of a, of a club, you know, a late night club. And um, it's it's quite amazing the the restrictions on it. But then at the same time, it makes you realize it's 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 so controlled. Um, I don't know, Max. Is, is has there been conversation at that level yet about New York State, about what the experience is going to be like in in the retail? Yeah, I mean, I think the more apt comparison is is not to bars, but to you know basically what we call bulletproof liquor stores, where you know uh, there's bulletproof glass, and you walk in, and all the product is behind bulletproof glass, and and everybody agrees that's not a a, a great retail experience, and those are discouraged in New York State. And I think you know as the industry matures, at least the hope would be um, that you would have. Uh, nicer experiences. But I mean, the Jimmy, you talk about people, you know, getting high. I mean, one thing that is, I think, an interesting feature of New York's law, 
um, which, and I'd love to know from Andrew if there's anything like this in Massachusetts, um, is something called an on-site consumption lounge license, which um, is not really? a retail dispensary. It's a place where you could presumably purchase a uh, product and either smoke it or consume it on the site, similar to what you do in a, in a coffee shop in, in, in Amsterdam or um, something like that. Um, it, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, uh, about that type of license because people find it so interesting. Um, but there's a lot of unknowns about how that license actually is going to operate and, um, how it's going to compare to your typical, um, dispensary and sort of what type of experience it's going to be. Like, is it going to be like a nightclub? But we know for, we know it for a fact that you're not going to be allowed to have liquor in these on-site consumption lounges. So you won't be, be able to have like a, a place where people are consuming alcohol and um, getting high. Uh, but, uh, you know, so what's it going to look like? What's going to go on in them? You know, uh, is it going to be more like a health and wellness, you know, concept with yoga? Or is it going to be more like a bar or restaurant? It's a lot of people talking about that type of license category and um, whether it's going to be, you know, vi a viable business model. Andrew, anything like that? in the works from Massachusetts? Um, we're like flat stepped over, tripped over our own feet and our faces in a big pile of dog shit. Uh, no, <laughs> it, it is not even close. They've, uh, they've tiptoed around the idea. Um, but you want to hear how ridiculous it is? This is how ridiculous it is. It comes down to the point where, um, they have enacted what they're going to call an opt-in program for the towns in Massachusetts to opt in. They're only selecting what they wanted to select was a dozen. I believe only 10 have signed up. And in this massively democratic state, everybody kind of tiptoes back and they say, oh, let's wait and see what the next town does. So there's 10 towns that have signed up for this, what they're calling a social consumption program. And they've written the rules and regulations for what a social consumption lounge is. But it, it, if you want to equate it to the, to the alcohol world, it's like walking into a bar and telling somebody they can only have a half a shot. <laughs> and then you got to go home. <laughs> so the, the, the way it's set up, it's just bogus. It, it's, it's like, let's restrict this so hard and so difficult that, that, it, that it makes it not even worth even trying to do. And that's where we are. I'm still trying to pick out the kernels from my teeth. Hey, let, let's go to some specifics. Andrew, you, you, you're, you're quite an interesting guy in the industry in Massachusetts. Um, I, I know you're, you have some kind of license, like a grow license in, in one of the towns. Yep. I have Can a, you tell us about the license and the process a little bit? Yeah, sure. So the license I own is a micro business license in Massachusetts. It was touted as the mom and pop business, the one that you can get into with uh, little restrictions, uh, the ability to do a lot with a little. Um, and uh, it, it's it, it's far from that, to be honest with you. Um, but it, it, if you have the right funding in place, you, you can make it work. And um, so what, what, what could you do if you had the right funding with that? License. Oh, with this license type, you're allowed to uh, manufacture and you're allowed to cultivate. Um, I was a heavy advocate in terms of policy decisions and, and, and pushing them to allow delivery through this license as well. So if you qualify and you're a social equity applicant, you could also apply for a delivery endorsement, 
which allows you to deliver the products that you make within your, your facility directly to uh, customers' doors. So uh, the one thing this license doesn't allow you to do is hold a retail license. So that ability to uh, hold that, um, you know, that B2C option was, was implemented. And um, so technically you can cultivate, manufacture, and deliver with this license type. So you can't, you can't come in and purchase on site as a consumer, no. but you could deliver it to my house. Correct. Interesting. Very interesting. Hey, Max, um, talking about real estate, <laughs> um, how, how soon should I go and, and, and rent a lounge with the hope that I could have an on-site consumption lounge? Because I don't want to say names, but I, I know uh, someone in our industry in New York City who's already gone and, and rented a space and they're opening it as a cafe soon. <laughs> well, look, um, you know, far be it from me to, to give legal advice to people um, over the air. But, uh, you know, if you're if you were asking me uh, and I was your attorney, I would tell you uh, pump the brakes on signing leases just yet. We're still a ways away in New York from um, from having applications that you could actually submit. Um, what I do tell clients who um, are consulting with us uh, currently and wanting to trying to gear up and get ready for uh, applications when they are ready to be filed is it's not too early to start identifying uh, neighborhoods, communities, places where you think you may have a good business and trying to start building connections in those communities. Anybody who on your listening to your show is familiar at all with the liquor licensing process in New York City is familiar with New York City's community boards and what an integral role the community boards play in the liquor licensing process. Well, guess what? If you want to have a cannabis uh, dispensary license or an on-site consumption lounge license, you're going to need to go through that same exact community board process and get the local neighbors to uh, sign off on or at least to recommend to the CCB that they support your application. So who you are, your reputation in the community, are you, you know, have you, if you've grown up here, have you, you already have businesses here? Do you have any connection here? What is your reputation? Is your, is it a good connection or a bad connection? I mean, these things matter. Uh, you know, a lot of our clients naturally, since we specialize in alcoholic beverage law are um, already in the bar and restaurant industry in New York city. So they already have, you know, connections in the community and, you know, um, uh, sometimes those are good. Sometimes those are not so good, but that matters. And, um, because, uh, that's going to play an important role in your ability to get, uh, any type of retail license, uh, even though it's a state law, the New York city community boards are, are written into that, that state law. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, is, is, is there anything that we haven't talked about that, that you want to bring up that's relevant? Cause there's a lot, there's so many different things we could talk about. Yeah, like I'm a huge proponent of being active in the industry on the policy side. It, it's important. You know, these decisions that lawmakers make dictate the way the industry flows. Um, so, you know, one thing I'd say if anybody's really interested in getting a license is, is to understand the protocol. Like you want to be your own lawyer and Max, I'm, not saying that they should go around you by any means. <laughs> what, what, what I'm saying is you need to be educated. Like you can't 
navigate these paths without knowing where it's going. And, you know, you, you, there's a lot of hurdles and things you need to figure out and, and, and processes to go through. I primarily did my license by myself. I had a lawyer. Uh, we, we paid him a retainer, but I only used him when I really needed to, kind of like um, bits and pieces. Um, and he was great. You know, I was one of his first clients and he's built a great business around himself to get there. And I, you know, I, I think, I think the initiative that you need to take in order to figure this out is, is to really educate yourself because um, nothing against Max and his group, but you guys don't know as much as you don't know. And there, there's so much coming into play that needs to be learned um, and read and understood and, and, and people can do this. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, your willingness and your time and energy to put into the process. Uh, if you if you don't do the work, you, you're you're not going to get. You 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 seem to know a lot about growing too. I know you're this group, Beantown, Greentown. There's there's people talking about seeds. I mean, this is a product that you grow. It's an agricultural product. It's it's not a, a chemical. Um, what are the basis of growing that we should know about the seeds? Um, a, a, a few pointers because, again, yeah, we're all my friends are looking at retail license or on-site consumption license and yeah. they don't really know anything about the yeah, product or cultivating it. It, it, it. It's an interesting play because, um, you know, it, say, it reminds me when I was a college kid, I went to Washington square park in New York city and the guys were selling joints that actually had grass in them. And we didn't know what the hell the difference was. So, yeah, no, things have come a long way. Um, just, just the hybridization of cannabis alone the different areas where it's come from around the world and how it's been combined and, and put together is, is, is an art form all on its own. Uh, there's a big company out there called Phylos. And if anybody's really interested in cannabis cultivation and genetics and lineage and, you know, what it means to have your own genetics, this company studied those. They can plot, they can plot them on a, on a universe per se. Um, and they can, you know, Put them together next to each other and, and tell you where your plant came from, what the lineage is of it, um, and and just to touch on it, home growing is is like a huge aspect to the law, especially in New York. And uh, restricting people from being able to grow their own is is a crime in and itself. I I really believe that people should be able to do this on their own at home on their own free will, just like you know Jimmy can go into his garage and and brew his own beer. It's no different, um, and it and it's actually beneficial to society. Um, you know, we take more people out of prisons. You know, we calm those with anxiety. We, um, you know, heal the ones that are sick. And being able to do it on your own is a freedom that we should have in America to be able to treat ourselves. So, so Andrew, uh, preview of this Grow Well conference in uh, Haverhill, Massachusetts. So you've got a veteran group, uh, Patriots Helping Veterans. So you, you you say that they're learning how how to grow their own plant at home. Yep. And that so what 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 are they? What is this therapy yeah. for them? It's it's Patriots helping vets, and they're a great group because what they do is they take the needs of individuals, particularly in the veteran society, that are shamed from using cannabis because of the VA rights, and they allow them. And they educate them and they provide them with the necessary means to be able to grow it at home. 
So for example, like I'm a grower and I go through a lot of material. I go through a lot of, you know, fans, lights, and, and I change out my equipment based upon the technology. That equipment that sits on my shelf that I don't use, these guys acquire. I donate it to them and many other people donate to them as well. They then take that equipment and they provide it to vets that can't afford it. Then they teach them how to grow. I also grow and produce seeds and clones that I share with people as well. And that system is helping destigmatize what cannabis is, in my opinion, through a noble cause of helping people to have problems coping with society, the PTSD and the trauma from war. And it's really helping people. And um, they don't shy away from their name when they say Patriots Helping Vets because these vets really need the help yeah. and they're patriots for going after So, it. So one thing you mentioned, so you said in Massachusetts, there's medical marijuana, it's legal, it can be prescribed, but you're saying that veterans, if they go to the federal VA, are they not able to get that medical marijuana? Yeah, this is an area where I, I tiptoe around because my knowledge base on, on what the VA is and, and how it restricts them is, is, is pretty limited, but from what I know, because the Veterans Association is a is a is a federally backed program, they're going to prescribe them with uh, opiates and and pharmaceuticals, and they're they're they they can't touch cannabis because it's federal um, uh, federal schedule one. So therefore, there's so many vets out there that are medicating themselves, trying to figure out ways to do it on their own, um, and that's where Patriots Helping Vets comes in because most of these vets are you know flying the good old American middle finger at the government saying, I need to treat myself. You're providing me a path of death and destruction with pills and pharmaceuticals. I'm going to say no to you. And I'm going to go out on my own and do this myself the right way. Well, there's, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, I think the, the biggest thing is just uh, how far we all have to go. Uh, <laughs> Max, is any other final question or statement you want to make? Because yeah, I mean, this I, really I, is a wild, wild, wild west in New York right now. Yeah, I mean, they're they're trying to tame the wild west and you know uh, and put some order to it, and you know, they're it's not going to make everybody happy, and there's a lot you know that's sort of yet to come. I think you know, just on the, the VA point and and federal you know legalization, or excuse me, regulation, and the fact that it's not legal on the federal level. I mean that. That has a big impact on you know the regional cannabis economy and really preventing there from being a, a legal one. I mean, if you use the alcohol comparison, if you're a you know a microbrewery in in you know in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, and you want to uh, you know sell to a distributor who can then you know distribute your product uh, across the border in uh, you know in a town in New York, you know in, in in Albany or something. I mean, that's that's there's. There's a lot of paperwork to go through, but it's, it's legal. There's a way to do that. Um, even if you fast forward to a year from now, and let's say you know we have uh, retail licenses issued in New York, there's no way for a startup, you know, uh, in Massachusetts, uh, cultivator, um, to sell their product to anybody in New York or or Vermont or Connecticut or anywhere else, and that's because. Um, it's illegal on the federal level to to traffic over state lines in in cannabis, and so until we do have you know, federal legalization, we're never going to see the development of a regional or national cannabis market, which of course creates its own potential issues. 
um, for startups. But um, you know, it's something that you know, being in New York and in the tri-state area, you know, is a real concern. You know, I mean, we have people who are not necessarily just based in New York City, but they live in Connecticut and they have they have business interests in, in New Jersey. And um, you know, the, the federal component, I think, is the is the big elephant in the room that um, that uh, you know is still really yet to be addressed. We're addressing things on the state level, obviously, and we're moving forward on the state level, but the federal level is still really, really open. Yeah. Uh, one thing on the federal level, so Andrew, you mentioned this classification of the schedule of the types of, of drugs. Um, does it actually need to be, does interstate trade of marijuana need to be legalized or is it just need to be scheduled down so it's like a Tylenol or something. Yeah, ultimately, you, it should be removed from the schedule. I, you know, you just like how are you going to associate uh, marijuana with heroin? Because that's what Schedule One does. Is, is it basically associates all these drugs and they and you put it in a comparison. So marijuana level. federally is considered to the schedule. It's considered the same as heroin. Yeah, I mean, descheduling it, if I could just quickly say, descheduling it's important, but, uh, you know, a federal law allowing for the interstate trafficking in marijuana is also important because, you know, before we had the 21st Amendment, which allows for states to control their own alcohol regulation, you go back to before the prohibition, you had dry states that didn't want alcohol in their borders. And, you know, and so the problem that you'll find, you know, with, with, you know, with the politics of, of, of a law that allows interstate trafficking of marijuana is you're going to have states that don't want marijuana in their borders. You know, New York and Massachusetts, which border each other, may have it legalized, but, you know, um, you know, New York and Pennsylvania, you know, may not, or Pennsylvania and Ohio. And so, you know, if so, it, there are some big political hurdles to climb with, with you know, with, with the interstate uh, trafficking point, but it's, it's important if you're ever going to have a regional economy. Yeah, essentially, there's there's a big federal push to decriminalize. Like decriminalizing on a federal level, you know, over overstates like a lot of local level crimes and such. They they're, they're going to find ways around getting people out of of jail that have been criminalized in in states where it is criminal. Um, we need to free up the system. You know, ultimately, there's there's too many people in jail for the wrong reasons, and, and cannabis is one of those reasons. And and we need to figure that out on a social level. Wow. Well, I want to appreciate you guys. Uh, thank you for taking the time with me. I learned a lot. You're making me think on the beer side that, you know, I talking about homebrew, uh, I think about all the friends who are growing hops in, in their backyard or in the yard of a friend. And um, I'm thinking about, I should give it a, a try to grow some, uh, some cannabis plants when I'm in, since it's, legal in massachusetts and new york now um and maybe we'll see more of that and see where that goes right guys <laughs> I, don't I, know. Got, I got seeds for you to <laughs> yeah don't carry it yeah all right so let's just give a big shout out thank you arm and spengen our engineer is going to clean this up and we'll have this live for you when you hear it. it'll it be the end of the week uh in december 2021 um andrew muddy thanks so much for joining me and max bookman we're going to catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Thank you. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website 
heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.